Every year, our staff has a Christmas party. One family at our church uh, is generous enough to offer hospitality and breakfast, and so we gather, and we have a, just a delicious meal, and then we go down into the basement for our annual Christmas white elephant gift exchange, and it's just absolutely hilarious. You just kind of have to be there. Uh, we exchange gifts like old cable cords, uh, a Nerf gun with a target that has my face on it. Um, yeah, that wasn't funny, uh, but yeah, it is funny. And then there was a gift that was exchanged. I'd never seen anything like it. Have you all heard of sweater pants? Sweater pants. Yeah, some of you have. Maybe you have them, and we'll pray for you later. But um, they're just the ugliest things I've ever seen, which belong in white elephant gift exchanges. So, again, if you invented it, I'm really sorry. Please come back. Um, but after this exchange, and there are rules, you can only trade three times, and then it's frozen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, after this last year's white elephant gift exchange, I just got to thinking, where did that term come from? Does anybody know? Well, let's enlighten ourselves. So, in ancient Thailand, I'm not making this up, uh, in ancient Thailand, uh, the king, if he was happy with one of the members at court side, one of the courtiers, he was happy with one of his members at court, he would give as a gift a white elephant, uh, an albino white elephant, a live one. And this was a particular honor. Uh, along with this gift came money and land and servants to care for this creature, right? However, if the king was displeased with one of his courtiers, and if he wanted to ruin one of his courtiers, he would give that disfavored courtier a white elephant with no land, no money, no servants to take care of it the person at court would still be required to care for this thing because it was sacred in that culture. But that person would have to take care of it out of their own resources. And this unfortunate soul, because the elephant was sacred, could not even put it to work so that it could earn money. And this elephant would take an inordinate amount of time and resources, and energy, and emotions, and yes, finances. And finally, over time, this disfavored courtier would destroy himself because of the extremely burdensome process of caring for the white elephant. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> A story about the, um, well, the unwitting effect of white elephant wealth 
And it makes you wonder how much of that is prevalent in our own lives here in the West. You know, you buy something, then you have to store it, and then you have to clean it, and you have to care for it, and you have to maintain it, and, 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 and you get distracted about what really matters. And that takes us to our passage of Scripture today. We're going to look at the effect of white elephant wealth in a person that Jesus has a conversation with. In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30, if you have your Bibles there, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. Jesus has a conversation with a rich ruler. You'll find that on page 877 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, uh, please take uh, the copy that's in front of you. Put your name in it. Receive it as a gift from the church. And we're in our series on generosity. We've been talking about the currencies of generosity, generosity of hospitality, generosity of time, generosity of power. And here we're going to begin to learn about generosity and wealth. And Jesus converses with a man, and he offers to relieve this man of his white elephant wealth, but the man said no. Luke 18, 18 to 30. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. This is God's word. Amen. Now, there are three conversations that take place in this passage of Scripture that I want us to discuss this morning. And the first conversation is the conversation that Jesus had with the rich 
ruler. And in that conversation, we're going to hear Jesus upend and deconstruct this ruler's worldview. But then there's another conversation Jesus had. You heard it with the disciples where Jesus affirms their worldview. And then there's a third conversation that takes place. I don't know if you heard it or not, but I'll talk about that later, okay? Let's first get to the first conversation, the one with the rich ruler. Luke 18, 18 to 30 take place uh, in a context where Jesus is interacting with insiders and outsiders. He's talking about those who feel so sure that they're on the inside of God's kingdom, like the Pharisees and the religious legalists, and he's calling them to question that. And then at the same time, he's talking about outsiders. He's talking about tax collectors and widows and little children. And so you've got these insiders and you've got these outsiders, and Jesus is just really turning everything on it their head, and it has absolutely nothing to do in and of itself with the bottom line of the bank account, because the tax collectors were among the wealthiest. But Jesus, why would you say that they're on the inside, and, and yet why would you say that the Pharisees are on the outside, and, and it doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the bottom line bank statement. It has to do with self-sufficiency or God dependency. It has to do with humility. It has to do with my dependency upon the Lord. Luke intentionally puts this little paragraph, let the children come to me, prior to the rich ruler, because Luke wants us to see that those who have nothing, in fact, have everything, while the one who claims to have everything has nothing. You see? See what Jesus is doing? He's just turning everything on its head. And so we get to verse 18. And a ruler asked him, ruler, what do we mean by ruler? When we're talking about the word ruler, we're not talking about like royalty type of ruler. In this particular passage, in this particular context, the word ruler, think pillar of the community. Uh, think uh, 40 under 40, man of the year. Think that. This, this pillar of the community comes to Jesus Verse 18, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what a good question that is. What a very important question that is. It's a question that touches on the meaning of life and why we exist. And finally, you know, someone asks a substantial question, a question that opens the door to understanding as to why Jesus came. I don't know that the disciples had even contemplated such a significant question and and then the statement, you know, tell me what to do to go to heaven when I die is really not where this guy's coming from. You know, we would think that way in our maybe churched background and our history, but, but here's what this guy's asking. Jesus, when Yahweh appears to vindicate his own in the age to come, when the kingdom is restored to Israel, I would like to talk about my share in the administration. 
So you see, he's, he's not really wondering whether or not he's in or out. He's kind of assuming that he's in, and I just want to know what I need to do to get a good job in your administration when Yahweh comes, you know? I'm pretty sure I know where I stand, but, uh, you know, I'd kind of like another set of eyes to confirm my self-assessment. Uh, you know, I, it's, it'd be like this, I guess, if I were to say, Lord, you know, I've pastored a, a, a church in Champaign of, uh, how many were here last Sunday? What's the, what's the card say? Well, how many? Thousand. Over a thousand. I pastored a church of over a thousand in this world. What do I need to do to get a promotion? But just tell me, what need, tell, tell me what it takes. Tell me what it takes. That's kind of where this guy's coming from. And as usual, Jesus' answer, uh, he doesn't really just answer the question, but the heart behind the question. And he, he, answers, he answers the unasked question. He goes straight for the heart, beginning with, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You just called me good. Think Think about what you just said. Think about the implications, man. Are you affirming my oneness with the Father? And are you prepared to accept the consequences of that kind of a confession? See? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus just goes to the basics, right? You know the commands. You know the commands. Verse 20. And by the way, those were commands 5 through 9 in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments... The first four are vertically, uh, have a vertical trajectory, and then uh, five through ten have a horizontal uh, trajectory. So, so you just need to keep, the, you, know the, you know the basics, man. And, and Jesus omits the tenth command of coveting. Do you see that? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He doesn't mention the coveting command, and we'll soon see why. You know the commands. Keep these and your gold. Now, I find that confusing. I really do. I mean, why didn't Jesus say to this rich ruler what he said to Nicodemus in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should what? Believe, trust, have faith. That's not what Jesus says here. In fact, in verse 20, Jesus tells the rich ruler to do the very pious deeds that left the Pharisee in verse 11, look at verse 11, unjustified. You see? So it's like, why did he do that? Why did, Jesus, why did you do that? Here's why. Because he's a wonderful counselor, that's why. Because because. Jesus seeks to uncover the idols of the heart. And he's about to do it to this guy's heart. And the ruler, of course, confidently replies, Why, well, all of these, I have. I've done these. All these I have kept from my youth. I've done it. I've done it. And you know what the implication is, right? God's good. Jesus is good. I'm good. I'm good. And Mark 10 gives us a parallel account of this conversation. And Mark 10, 21 gives us a verse that Luke, for whatever reason, omits. Mark 10, 21 says, 
And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. And Jesus saw into his heart and loved that heart. And then Jesus says in verse 22, One thing you still lack. Go sell Downton Abbey. Divest yourself of Downton Abbey. Sell it. Sell the estate. Sell your heritage. Give the proceeds to the poor. And then come and follow me. Follow me. Join me. Join the 12. Join the others in the gospel community that I'm creating. Become one of my disciples. Let me be your Downton Abbey. And I will give you more than you have right now. I'm offering you everything because I'm offering you myself. And then you will have treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And Jesus didn't blink when he said that. And verse 23, the man did blink. When he heard these things, Scripture says he became very sad. The verb there is very grieved. He began to grieve. And we see that verb in Matthew 26, 38, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus himself said to his disciples, my soul is very grieved to the point of death the night before Christ was crucified. Mark's gospel says that this rich ruler, this rich young ruler in Mark's gospel went away. But Luke wants us to think that he was still standing there in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And you know, the 12, are, they're overhearing this conversation between Jesus and this ruler, and, and they're present, and this guy's walking away, and Jesus is letting this guy walk away, and, and they're looking at Jesus, and he's still not blinking, and it's like, what are you doing? Well, why did you tell me I had to sell everything, Lord? Really? Come on. What? Come and follow him. You didn't say that to the, you didn't see, say that to the guy that you had healed or the demons uh, who wanted to come with you. You didn't say that to him. You, in fact, you sent him back home and you, you told him to tell his family all that the Lord had done for him. You didn't say that to Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus gave back four times as much as he had defrauded people and, and half his estate to the poor. And you said salvation has come to this house. I mean, so, well, you know, we're not getting to the bottom of this passage of Scripture if we just say, well, in order to be a true and radical follower of Christ, this means that every person in every situation must sell everything if they want to be a Christian. No, this command was for this particular person in this particular situation, but why this particular person? And why this particular situation? And I think we have to go back to what Mark's gospel tells us when it says that he looked at him. He looked at him. Jesus saw something in his life with his eyes that you and I would miss with ours. He could see that this man's wealth was not just a tool or an instrument 
but that his wealth had become an elephant. His wealth had become an idol. His wealth had become his identity. His wealth had become a, a means of measuring his worth. And here, Jesus' omission of the 10th commandment now surfaces in this man's grieving, grieving. This rich ruler was a closet coveter. And, and understand, Jesus loved him in that condition. He doesn't say that he looked at him with anger or disgust. He was just straight with him. He was straight with him. Friend, you have fashioned yourself as a flawless keeper of the Torah. Wonderful. Now, follow in the footsteps of our father Abraham who left his family estate in Ur and later, when tested by God, was willing to part with his one and only son. To this rich ruler, Jesus says, picture life with no money, no inheritance, no estate, no annuity, no pension, no Downton Abbey, no servants, no mansion, just me. All you have is me. I am your Torah. I am your temple. I am your identity. I am the pearl of great price. I am your eternal life. He was offering this man the opportunity to experience John chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, his Son. Can you live like that? And in that defining moment, the rich ruler learned something about himself that actually Jesus already knew. He couldn't live like that. He wouldn't live like that. And so the most important question isn't what must I do to inherit eternal life? The primary question here is who owns me? And as this man walked away, he found out, didn't he? <laughs> And Jesus knew this, and now this man knew this, and now we know this. Now we know this. His stuff owned him. And this guy failed to see how parting with his possessions could open up possibilities that were beyond his comprehension. Think about it. Think about it. You're here today because... Someone at some point in your life lived out the word of God and it resonated with your spirit and you realize that there is more to this life than just this life and how does it all work and through their life, God's word in their life to your life, you realize well, Jesus is who he says he is. And you're here, and you're growing, okay? Well, this rich ruler was invited to such a life by Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Jesus saw something in this man that led him to say, I, I see a future for you far beyond anything that you can ask or imagine. I mean, if you think that what you have now is wealth, there's nothing to compare with. And, and what if the man had said yes? What if he had said yes? 
Yes, Lord, wait. I will sign the papers today. I will go to my father. I will take care of this. I will be right back. And then he goes and he has a very awkward conversation with his father and then returns with bags of gold. Lord, will you please help me share this? Can you picture the possibilities that might have taken place had he said yes to Jesus, to Jesus? I mean, perhaps Jesus would have invited him to follow him knowing what Judas would have done later with his silver. And perhaps he would have been Judas' replacement. Or maybe Jesus might have said, you know what? Now that I know that you love me and that you're willing to do this, you just passed the test. I want you to go back home, back to your father, back to the estate, and I want you to be the very best Christ-saturated steward of that which does not belong to you for the rest of your life. Use it. Just remember you don't own it. And, and you say, well, you're just speculating. Of course I'm speculating. Of course. Well, you will we'll never know. No, we won't ever know. We won't. Because he said no. That's why we won't know. We'll never really know this man's future. Jesus offered to be his substitute for his possessions. And the man said no. When you say no to Christ, you close yourself off to all of the possibilities of what he could do through you. And you never know. You never know. And you may be saying, well, if he would just let me know what some of those possibilities are, then maybe I can. It does not work like that, friends. It doesn't. <laughs> you see, Jesus is king. He's not your consultant. He's not. And this man came to Christ thinking of just, you know, one more thing he felt he needed to do to sort of tweak his life, you know. And Jesus detonated his worldview. Divest yourself of this. And at that moment, he just discovered, what must I do to inherit eternal life is really not the real question. The real question is, who possesses me? Whom do I worship? Who is my real God? And he walked. He walked. David Foster Wallace has been recognized as one of the finest novelists in the past 100 years. And this is what he wrote. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's really no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships uh, Foster Wallace does not come to the table as a Christian. Just a very insightful human being. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. 
If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. David Foster Wallace, he was an award-winning, best-selling novelist. He was at the top of his profession when he committed suicide in 2008. Hmm. Who's my real God? That's the question. And that's why verse 24 says what it says. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, you know, it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? It's easier for a camel, which was the largest land animal in Israel in that day, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest space, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard that, they said, you're right, Jesus, we've always thought that. No, that's not what they said. No, no, they were baffled. Listen, you have to understand their worldview because in first century Israel, the average Hebrew believed that to possess riches was to possess the blessing of God. And so Jesus just, he just turns it all on its, their head. And, and you can see stories in the Hebrew Bible of, of, of wealthy pious God followers. You see that in the lives of Abraham. You see that in Joseph. That's why Job was accused of sin by his friends when he was impoverished because they just assumed, well, you know, you were wealthy because you were pious and now that you're not wealthy, you must have sinned. And so we just kind of begin to formulize that and Jesus just rocks their world and Someone once was reflecting on these verses, and in their prayer life, they said, Lord, I have been rereading the record of the rich ruler and his obviously wrong choice, but it has set me thinking, no matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, turn on a light, buy penicillin, watch HDTV, load his dishwasher, check his email on his iPad, mow his lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on his smartphone. If he was rich, then what am I? Now, verse 26 says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, no one. It's impossible. You can't thread a camel through the eye of a needle. You can't. God can. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Do, do, do we understand the miracle 
of why it is we're here today? Do we understand the miracle of our salvation? Do we, do we grasp how supernatural it was for us to be freed from the kingdom of darkness and rescued and redeemed and adopted into the kingdom of God? Brothers and sisters, if it were not for the grace of Jesus, I would have walked with the rich young ruler. I would have walked with him. I would have. And um, here's what I mean when I say that. Um, so last November, uh, my father passed away. And I just really had the privilege of doing his funeral. And then after, as I was leaving the cemetery, you know, my family said, well, um, here are some things Dad wanted you to have. I said, okay. So this is my inheritance I'm going to share with you. All right? Now let me tell you something. Um, my father didn't go to college my father had a hard work ethic, and he uh, found his vocation into a very technical field in uh, the oil business. He used to draw offshore drilling platforms uh, that you know are out in the ocean and everything. Very technical, and he became very successful, and he became very wealthy. Um, very wealthy. And he, um, and he lost a lot of his wealth. Just unwise investments. And so, so, this is what I was left with. This is his hat. I don't wear hats. <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma. This is a cowboy hat. I, don't, I just don't wear cowboy hats. Okay, maybe if I'm impersonating Garth Brooks. That's the only time. But anyway, and uh, this is his hat. Okay. 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 And then, I received this. Can you all see this? This, this, is, um, this is Noah's Ark. And um, I've got a picture up here. There we go. And those are pewter. And there's, see Noah? And then there's the animals. And then the turtles. <laughs> you know, the other animals are going, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> right? <laughs> I 
And I'm just getting real with you here, folks. But I'm thinking, okay, maybe there's a secret compartment. <laughs> I, maybe. It's got to be it. You know, it's got to be it. You hear that? There's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing. There is enough of the flesh in me that if I dwell on this, that if I dwell on this, uh, I just start feeling really disappointed. I start feeling like Esau with his father who begged him for a blast. Come on. Don't you have anything for me? You know? That's why this passage of Scripture is meaningful to me. And then the last... The last gift that my father left me um, when I really think about it, I, it it makes me ashamed of what I just said to you but it also heals me this is his Bible And the Bible cover here is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And it's like the Lord is saying, Randy, what don't you have? What don't you have? I mean, I've given you a, a, a wife for 34 years. I've given you two sons who love me. You have a beautiful little granddaughter and you've got a grandson on the way and I've given you, I've given you a thousand brothers and sisters in Christ. I've given you the guarantee of life to come, the Holy Spirit. I've given you the direction of my word. What, what don't you have? And, and, and he he doesn't get disgusted with me when he says that. He just looks at me and he loves me. And that's what he says. I'm your hope. I'm your inheritance. I'm your prosperity. The hat and the ark are going to rot, man. This won't. It won't. Your father has given you the best inheritance that you can ever receive. And I think that's what behind, was behind verse 28 when Peter says, we've left our homes 
and followed you. And Jesus said to them, you know, you made the right decision. And because you've made me your identity and you've made me your prosperity, and you've trusted me, I, I'm giving you the kingdom. I'm turning the world's values on its head. And the last are going to be first. The first are going to be last. And if you leave your house or your wife or your brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom, look, I'm going to give you many times more in this life, in this life, and in the life to come. So, you know... What Jesus is saying is this. Whatever he tells you to part with, you will, he will not leave you with less. He wants to give you more. And that's why the scripture says in Mark's gospel, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Why was his heart so filled with love? Because at this point in time, Jesus was, this is a passage of scripture about two rich rulers. Two rich young rulers. Jesus is a rich ruler, a rich young ruler, far richer than this man can imagine, Jesus living in incomprehensible glory. And he already left that wealth behind him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that though Jesus Christ was rich for our sakes, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And why? For us. So he's, Jesus is saying, look, if I, if I gave away my big all to get to you, can you give away your little all to follow me? I'm not going to ask you to do anything I haven't already done. I am the ultimate rich young ruler who's given away ultimate wealth to get to you. And if you, once you understand that Jesus is the real rich ruler in this passage, it's going to change your attitude about life and about stuff and about job and family and relations. And you won't be trying to figure out how much you have to give away. You'll try to figure out how much you can give away. Because the real standard for generosity will be the cross, which is why what immediately follows in this passage of Scripture is Jesus foretelling his death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 33, after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And what's true for him is true for us. And whatever he tells you to part with, he'll never leave you with less. I want your mindset to be shaped by what I'm going to do on the cross. Let's pray.